So good evening, Sangha. I'm so honored to be here with you all. I just want to tell you that, that um, this past five and something weeks have been definitely a profound experience for me to um, see how we're all willing to sit in the fire and uh, to cook up and to um, allow purification to happen and allow wisdom and compassion to be, to be strengthened and nurtured. It's been a real honor for me to, to witness all that. So I wanna thank you. And since it might be the last time, well, it won't be the last time I'm speaking to you, but I'm going to smudge myself on you one more time. (laughs) (laughs) So um, tonight I would like to talk to you about the Eightfold Path, about Sila Samadhi Panya. And... um, It's one of the things that we take with us when we're practicing so-called in the world, not like this isn't the world. I asked Joseph if he had, uh, you know, Miyamari's trying to crowdsource my Dharma talks, and I I asked Joseph, you know, you got anything for me for Eightfold Path? (laughs) 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 Then he said, uh, well, just tell them that... uh, Practice on the cushion is the easy part. And I could see how that is absolutely true. Marian Williamson says, the spiritual path is simply the journey of living our lives. Everyone is on a spiritual path. Most people just don't know it. When you think about it, we're always nurturing something. We're either nurturing wisdom, ethical conduct, and mental cultivation, or we're nurturing greed, hatred, and delusion, or we're nurturing some combination of those. So the Buddha said, bhikkhus, just as the dawn is the forerunner and first indication of the rising of the sun, so is right view the forerunner and first indication of wholesome states. For one of right view, bhikkhus, right intention springs up. For one of right intention, right speech springs up. For one of right speech, right action springs up. For one of right action, right livelihood springs up. For one of right livelihood, right effort springs up. For one of right effort, right mindfulness springs up. For one of right mindfulness, right concentration springs up. For one of right concentration, right knowledge springs up. For one of right knowledge, 
right deliverance springs up. For one of right knowledge, right deliverance springs up. It's a guarantee. So we know that the Eightfold Path uh, consists of these eight path factors. And I think of them, um, I actually had this beautiful quote from Ajahn Chah that I realized wasn't on my flash drive. So I'll try to tell you what it said. He talks about um, the path factors being forces. Uh, Forces that, when they're strong, they lead us and they lead this you know, current fabrication in a certain direction towards happiness and freedom. And when the path factors are weak and the defilements are strong, the, you know, the defilements really keep the path factors at bay. And he talks about them just really fighting it out. You know, the eight path factors, Sigala, Samadhi, Panya, they're forces, they're forces that we can feel in us. And greed, hatred, and delusion, and their thousand emanations. And you know, they're walking with us in life and they're battling it out. <laughs> so who's gonna win? So let's talk about right view. As I'm sure we all know, there are two factors, path factors in the right view, um, the right view camp. And let's think about view. But behind everything that we do and everything that we think and say, there is a view. Some views are conscious and many are not so conscious. They are the way that we orient, orient our lives just in living. They're the perspectives and beliefs that make sense of our world. We have views about religion, about appropriate family life, about philosophy. We might have uh, views about gender roles, about occupations and jobs, about our shadow material or other people's shadow material, about ourself, about science. And you know, many of the time these views aren't even obvious to us. The Buddha called them, you know, the latent, latent constructs that we have that are often invisible as we live our lives. But the, view to, the Buddha talked about right view. And what did he include in right view? He talked about the law of karma. And just knowing, you know, that it's important to pay attention to what is wholesome and unwholesome. And Annie gave a beautiful talk about karma. So I won't say much about that. And then uh, one, another element or another dimension of a right view is the understanding of impermanence. And with the understanding of impermanence 
is also the understanding of anatta and dukkha, really the three characteristics. And if we have right view, if we had um, strong enough satisampajanya, a mindfulness and clear comprehension, we would see we would see the three characteristics in almost every part of our lives. And that's really what, um, what releases us from suffering, is not expecting the world to be other than it is. I love this little saying by Wei Wu Wei. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. (laughs) Another um, dimension of right view, samaditi, is the Four Noble Truths to um, understand that, and you know, the Four Noble Truths all have a verb associated with them. I know you know that, so. Suffering is to be understood. Suffering is to be known. And I know that's a lot of what we've done here together, what you have done in these last five weeks or almost three months you have open to the reality of that in your lives and in the lives of those you love and, you know, even broader beyond that. And that's an incredibly no- ennobling exercise. And it's not easy. I was just uh, hearing from uh, a friend who came to visit me from Worcester that said, there's a huge amount of... Um, heroin use around this area. You know, a huge, uh, a huge amount of uh, deaths and disability due to people shooting up. And that's the exact opposite of what we're doing here. It's just not being able to open up to reality at all. Or finding just the basic existence of life just too difficult to be able to handle without, you know, huge amount of drugs. And I think it's usually in response to suffering that people take up those things. So just the fact that you've been able to sit here and without any drugs, I think mostly. (laughs) 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 Maybe a little black tea or, (laughs) you know, to be able to really just open up to that with hopefully some, you know, over time with some compassion and some clarity. That's not a little thing. It's not a little thing. You know, dukkha has been known. I think with everyone that I've worked with, dukkha has been known. And then, you know, the second noble truth, uh, that's part of right view, is to believe that we know the cause of our suffering. To have seen you know, the uh, craving for existence, craving for uh, pleasure in all the ways that we think that we'll get it. 
and um, and you know it's sometimes maybe craving for non-existence and just feeling the pain of that and then I'm sure that um, all of us have also had moments of freedom of having you know just really sweet mindfulness and clarity and uh, friendliness and compassion in our mindfulness and moments of just feeling the freedom of non-attachment. And we know that, you know, that's, that's possible for all of us. And then the Noble Eightfold Path, of course, is itself the fourth noble truth, the way to end suffering. The Buddha also said, if we want to suffer less, it helps to know that we are suffering. And then the second, the second element of the wisdom factor of the Eightfold Path is right intention. Sama Sankapa. And it was interesting listening to Bhikkhu Bodhi talk about this. He said that right intention was um, really associated with right effort. I thought this was so interesting. He was saying that uh, the way we understand right, uh, right intention, also call, called right thought or right emotion, is as the mental factor, the mental factor associated with right action, you know, which is... Um, in the, uh, the next, the sila aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path. So in right intention, we know we're looking at the intention of renunciation. And in that sense, it's uh, just being able to let go. Another thing that we talked about in the, um, in the staff dining room was the wisdom of using the term letting go or letting be. Sometimes we're able to let go and sometimes we have to be happy and okay with letting be. And then the opposite of, or what comes when we have the intention of renunciation, which is generosity, being able to realize, you know, when enough is enough and when we have enough to share. What I love about um, the intention of renunciation and right intention is that, you know, it's not something that it's a burden, that's a burden or not something that makes us feel like we're deprived. When, um, when the path factor of right intention is engaged, this this force in us, uh, we're able to renounce things because we understand that the things that we maybe traditionally uh, are greedy for or are aversive with, that those things are just not going to bring the level of satisfaction that you know our culture or our economic system wants us to believe. We know that accumulation past a certain amount, you know, is not going to provide any additional happiness. And that, 
you know, we were um, sitting in the in the staff dining room, and one of our dear friends, who was also te- a teacher, was coming, uh, finishing up a month at the Forest Refuge. And we were all excited because he's got a new girlfriend. <laughs> and I found her picture on the internet, and we we're all looking at it. And he was talking about how absolutely happy he is. He, you know, that this was, it's a really great match. She's also a Dharma teacher, and... You know, it's a really good match. And it was so wise. He turned to us and said, and it makes me about this much happier. I just thought that was such wisdom. Because, you know, I mean, I'm, I can so see that. I'm engaged. I have a diamond ring. <laughs> and I'm about that much happier. <laughs> You know, I love my fiancé, and I'm not enlightened, you know. I, I still have more to go. It's not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. It's wonderful, but... <laughs> so now I guess he can't listen to this Dharma talk, though. No. <laughs> no, he's great, he's great. But you all know the point that I'm making. You can change, you know, you could slip in anything that you really want right now for this diamond ring. A boat that you want or, you know, to be able to retire at a certain age or maybe to travel to this place or that place. And, you know, it'll probably make you about this much happier. It's just knowing that accumulation of experiences and all these things just don't hold the, uh, because they're conditioned things, you know, uh, they're sankara, they're conditioned. They just don't hold the level of satisfaction that, you know, that we hope for when we're pursuing them. So um, that's the intention of renunciation. And that, you know, comes... Uh, renunciation is actually really easy when we can see that the things that we're really looking for don't hold the level of satisfaction that we think they will. The second uh, dimension of right intention is the intention of non-ill will or the, um, you know, the intention of uh, the opposite of that or the same as that, the intention of metta or loving kindness of compassion and of um, just having benevolence in the world. And then the third um, dimension of right intention is the intention of non-cruelty, refraining from cruelty and aggression and cultivation and, you know, the cultivation of its opposite of cruelty, which is compassion. The Buddha said, intention, I tell you, is an action. Through intention, one acts by way of body, speech, and mind. And I always liked the way, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about uh, actions of the body, speech, and mind. And actually, the Buddha laid out really clearly how those are elements of body, speech, and mind when he taught about the ten unwholesome paths of karma. Uh, He talked about um, hurting and destroying life, you know, killing as, uh, and then taking what is not given, the uh, precept of, um, you know, not stealing and not killing. And then 
the precept of to refrain from sexual misconduct. Actually, it's much broader than that. It's to refrain from, or the unwholesome um, action is actually lust or greed in regard to any sense pleasure that, you know, is unwholesome. So those three are the um, actions of the body. They're considered the actions of the body, karmic actions of the body that bring pretty bad results. And then uh, the um, actions of speech or, you know, as we know, right speech that Brian will be talking a lot about, maybe (laughs) tomorrow, (laughs) are uh, false speech slanderous speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. And it would probably be bad speech of me to talk any more about speech right now. (laughs) Since Brian's going to talk about that. And then, yeah, idle chatter. And um, so those are the four unwholesome paths, a karmic uh, karma, you know, unwholesome passive karma unfolding. So we have the body and then we have speech and then we have the mind. And in the mind we have um, greed, envious eagerness to possess something. Envious eagerness. You know, when someone else has something that we want or just an eagerness, you know, a deep desire to possess material wealth, or, you know, just stuff. And then the other uh, two of mind, the unwholesome passive karma of mind are ill will or aversion, hate, and the many ways that hate is manifest in us individually and in our communities and society and in the world. And then wrong view itself is one of the um, 10 unwholesome, one of the three unwholesome um, deeds of the mind, of the body, speech, and mind. That's what, that's what he means. So that's the, that's the wisdom element, the wisdom component of the Eightfold Path, right view and right intention. And can we see how that really works, how it could work as a force, a force, a force in our lives? When I'm actually up against breaking a precept, it's so interesting, it's almost like particularly lying or even just exaggerating um, and stealing for sure or taking what's not given and definitely also um, harming, you know, physically harming and killing, you know. Definitely, I don't have not engaged in that for a very long time. But even what would be harming, it's almost like I will you know, bump up close to the line of that precept and it's almost like it gets brighter in my mind and I can see where the line is. I don't know if that's how it is for you. I think after, an, a, um, you know, many of you have done this retreat many, many times 
and many of you have been practicing for very, very long, and others of you may be shorter amounts of time. But the more you practice, that's what happens. It's like, it's not like you have to remember, oh, what are the precepts? It's when you're going about your life and you get close to a transgression, it pops up without even you having to remember. It pops up and there's like a line there where you know you're about to cross it. Or you even know how close you are to the line. It's a really interesting, um, it's an interesting experience that has something to do with intuitive awareness. It's not really part of the conceptual mind. That's been my experience of it. And I know many of you have that experience. So that's the wisdom aspect. And then the next uh, three path factors are sila samadhi, or sila, sila, the sila element of the path. Uh, And they are, as we know, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And you can see the the relationship of wisdom to ethical conduct. You have to know what produces harm and what is wholesome action in order to, uh, you know, use your um, samadhi to actually know when you're about to engage in activities that are wholesome or not. And again, I'm not going to talk about right speech. I'm going to have right speech and not talk about right speech. (laughs) I'm not going to steal that path factor. (laughs) 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 And uh, I'll talk about right action. So there are three elements of right action that, um, you know, are very similar to the unwholesome uh, karmic actions. And those are uh, refraining from killing, refraining from taking what is not given, and refraining from sexual misconduct. But as we know from the 10 unwholesome uh, karmic actions, you know, it's beyond refraining from uh, just sexual misconduct. It's misconduct with anything that might, um, you know, that might produce heedlessness and that might be um, harmful to self or to other people. And then there's right livelihood. Now that's a bit of a tough one, I think, and... Uh, for those of us living in the West. Because right livelihood is, you know, in the suttas, it's it's things like um, not dealing in weapons and not dealing in living beings like prostitution or slavery or human trafficking. Not working in meat production or butchery not making or selling intoxicants or poisons, or just more broadly, not engaging in any livelihood that breaks the precepts. But I think if we looked closely, we could probably find in all of the jobs there are, particularly in the West, a way that something associated with the companies that we work for or you know, the ways that we have invested our savings or even the cars that we drive, our modes of transportation. You know, it gets complicated. You know, our global economy complicates this precaution to do no harm to others. 
someone might work in a department store that sells clothes from exploited labor. You know what today is? You guys are so lucky that you're missing it. Today is Cyber Monday. I hope that didn't water little seeds of greed in your hearts. You're not missing a thing, I can tell you. Because I've looked. No, just kidding. <laughs> I did. A, I was so happy, you know. I actually did a Google search. Best Cyber Monday deals. And I went to the sites and there was so little pull there. It made me so happy to see that. You know, just a bunch of stuff. You know, I might buy it today and I try to sell it on eBay in two months, right? <laughs> That's the cycle. So Cyber Monday. So right livelihood, it's really... I think that this is one of the places, and, and with all of the Eightfold Path, all of the Eightfold Path, you know, just this idea of the path itself. You know, there's different ways. It's all ending up in freedom and uh, Nibbana and um, a deep understanding of the way things are, of freedom, of non-duality, of knowing, you know, at every moment our interconnectedness, knowing the intimacy of that, the satisfaction of that. But the ways that we travel to that to that goal can look very different and it really is up to all of us to figure out you know what it looks like to get there um, it, and the path itself can have different flavors to it we were talking about even you know, this wisdom path, right here we've been practicing a lot of wisdom practices. And there's something, and I don't know, this may or may not be true for all of you, it's true for some of us, there feels to be, uh, it feels to be a little gendered. It feels to be a little male gendered. And there's something about traveling a path that's more relational and that's more somehow... It's hard to even describe because it's a non-conceptual way of understanding it. You know, there's, uh, there's paths up to freedom that are absolutely going in the, in the same direction that just have different flavors to them. And, um, and they're all absolutely, you know, we have to find what that path looks like for us. And, you know, we have to look around to see, is this the right path? Does this have the elements that really speak to, you know, how my transformation is going to look with maybe relational uh, values and relational priorities and priorities for languaging that's consistent with my... For me, it would be... You know, I, I have in the past participated in a lot of traditional indigenous ceremonies. You know, I sun danced for six years and, you know, went to a lot of Native American church ceremonies. And there's so much of that that is the same as this. And, you know, my path looks more indigenous. It looks more, 
It just looks more uh, related to um, earth element and fire element and water element and air element. And maybe for some of you, the path will look, you know, more uh, female or more, you know, feminine or more male, more about, uh, you know, taking a stand or whatever it feels like to be male, maybe more wisdom oriented. Or maybe there will be no gender element. Maybe there is a combination, a transgender element to the path that some of us will walk. And I just want you know all you all to know that you, and many of you probably know maybe all of you know that um that's just how it you know it, it works there's not one way that everyone has to do this in fact there's not one way that anybody that all of us could do it there is not one way that works for everybody and we really do have to find you know our way along that path but with these principles these principles are manifest in very different ways. And we have to find a way that speaks to us intuitively so that those path factors can strengthen. And they will strengthen in the way that makes sense for us. So right action and right livelihood. So I have a little table here of the things that support right action. Or here's things that support breaching the precepts. What are the things that support breaching the precepts? One is, you close the best business deal ever. Right? Like some element of our job or work. What would it be for me? Maybe, you know, I totally... um, wrote a research proposal that said that these five tribes were going to work for work with me and they were going to do this and that and I handed it in and I never even talked to them about what they were going to do that happens pretty regularly and what would it look like for any of you the support for breaching the precepts or maybe the thought in our mind you know I really hold my alcohol well. Or just sources of injustice and exploitation that we might be involved with on a, um, you know, on a conscious level. And then what are some supports for keeping the precepts? I love what the suttas say about the supports for keeping the precepts. You will become lovable. I bet you among your communities, you're one of, you guys are some of the most lovable people in there. Isn't it true? <laughs> you're probably some of the most wisest people. You're probably you know, the go-to person in, in the communities that you live in. Another support for keeping the precepts or of knowing that, you know, right view is knowing um, wholesome and unwholesome is that we're free from self-blame. 
and freedom from self-blame and from um, anxiety and worry and from shame of wrongdoing. It's a huge support for the next uh, path element, which is uh, samadhi. That's how those go together. When we have ethical conduct, sila, it creates, it hugely contributes to the conditions for uh, the path factors of samadhi or moral development or mental development to be strengthened and to be easy. Another um, positive element of keeping the precepts is wise people won't gossip or yell at you. (laughs) Another really good one is that you won't go to jail. (laughs) And that uh, when we keep the precepts, at every moment we are creating the conditions for good things to happen. And getting back to the relationship between um, uh, Panya and Sila, when we have wholesome intentions, when we have right intention, it is a huge support for right action, right speech, and right livelihood to, to develop. The two are very well tied together. And then we have the uh, path group of mental discipline or samadhi, bhavana. Aaron reminded me that it's bhavana, cultivation. And uh, those are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we know that right effort is avoiding and preventing the arising of unwholesome mental states. Uh, Preventing unwholesome states from arising that have not yet arisen. And this one has been a really wonderful one for me to work at in my uh, daily life. Because I really do believe in... um, in, um, you know, not exposing yourself to things that are going to kick up your greed. To um, So what I did was I took myself all of the catalog email lists that I was prone to, to peruse a lot. And that helped incredibly. Just taking myself off of, you know, those really put a big, uh, really reduced the amount of suffering and clinging and groping I had towards a bunch of stuff that in a few months later I tried to sell on eBay (laughs) or that I gave away. You know, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff in that, uh, in the yogi giveaway (laughs) thing this week. So if you're interested, you should check over there. (laughs) So um, what is that called? (laughs) <laughs> no, no, the Dharma closet, yeah. But uh, no, when you, um, there's a term for it, when you, uh, when you don't explo- expose yourself to things that you are um, uh, tempted by. Sense restraint. Sense restraint, yes, there you go. <laughs> sense restraint. That's what it's called. I love sense restraint. You know, not looking at your VR or your VV, 
just staying away from them, it really has a huge impact. Sensory strain is huge. It's amazing how huge that is. And then um, the second element, of course, of right effort is abandoning unwholesome states which have already arisen. And we know we work with mindfulness to do that. Uh, we cultivate and bring forth wholesome states which have not yet arisen, and we maintain and develop wholesome states which have arisen. And I think that, you know, our evolutionary psychology has us not working with right effort, particularly around joy, the joy that uh, is absolutely appropriate for us to have. The Buddha said, how is effort fruitful? A practitioner when not cut up, does not get caught up in suffering and not infatuated with pleasure, does not give up appropriate pleasure. There is appropriate pleasure. This is not a path of, you know, I mean, of course we do come to know the first noble truth, but there's a huge amount of appropriate pleasure for us to have. I was so um, happy to have... Um, walked the Seattle Sangha with the Seattle Insight Meditation Sangha to work through uh, James Berez's Awakening Joy series. It was such a delight. We're supposed to notice when we have wholesome mental states, all of that, uh, uh, all of that unworldly joy. Un and you know, joy is a euphemism for all of the positive and uh, pleasurable mental states that we have for gratitude and for mindfulness and joy as you know a, a factor of enlightenment, for resilience, for integrity, and just how good integrity feels. And uh, letting go, renunciation, or renunciation based on wisdom, for you know, reflection on our own goodness, I'm telling you guys, really, after this, you should be blissed out reflecting on your own goodness for at least until the next three-month retreat. <laughs> Whenever you're down on yourself or thinking that you're worthless, please, you know, I'm going to ask you, just take a step back and say, wow, didn't I just sit six weeks or didn't I just sit three months? Didn't I just do all of that, what it took to, uh, you know, provide that for myself? You know, that's a huge amount of goodness in you that can, you can reflect on and actually should bring a lot of joy to your mind. So reflecting on your own goodness and then the joy of loving others, you know, we, and loving others that even, you know, really bug us. I'm thinking of, you know, our family members who aren't necessarily Dharma practitioners or Sangha members, or even Sangha members sometimes that bug us, right? But, you know, how we can love our family and just, even with all of their, you know, I'm thinking of my family, all of our, you know, substance abuse and harsh, harsh speech and, you know, uh, impatience and you know, greed and mana, conceit. You know, they, my family still loves me with all of that that they see in me, but, you know, the ability to really love our families in spite of all that, it's really a gift. And it brings joy to our minds when we can do it. 
And then um, another appropriate pleasure is just compassion. You know, I think I was blown away. And I remember the first time I heard that, that compassion feels good. I was sitting where you guys are sitting and Rebecca Bradshaw was sitting here and she was given a Dharma talk. And she said, compassion feels good. And I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) That was like a pivotal moment for me. Compassion feels good. And it is an appropriate pleasure. And then just the joy of relaxation and not having to do anything. You know, the joy of simply being. So, uh, we know what right mindfulness is. We've been practicing it very diligently. You know, so I'm so, you know, I can't even believe I'm sitting up here. This is, I've been calling this the Mac Daddy of Western Mindfulness events. It is. You know, the three-month retreat at IMS. And this place, oh my gosh. I just have so much deep gratitude. I could, you know, start tearing up right now about IMS's contribution to the, to the spread of mindfulness in the West. It's the mothership. I, you know, I consider it the mothership. You know, we were just having, we just had dinner in the staff dining room and there was a nun in there and it was like, everyone was so happy and there's nuns in there. <laughs> just gotta love that, you know. Just a place where, you know, the joy is so wholesome and so for the right things. And, uh, you know, sitting next to Joseph in his book, his mindfulness book. <laughs> I love that book. I know you guys like Joseph. I heard you guys talk about what, how sweet it was to uh, hear him in person doing the big mind meditation. It's just such a pleasure to, uh, to be taught mindfulness by someone who understands it so completely and so clearly. Wow, what a pleasure that is. That's a wholesome pleasure. Contemplation of the body, of feeling, of states of mind, of mental objects, of phenomena, of dhammas. And then right concentration is the third dimension of the mental discipline or bhavana element of the Eightfold Path. And we've all been practicing with concentration, whether it be Um, samadhi practice or whether it is um, vipassana jhana or vipassana concentration. Mindfulness, vipassana and concentration practice, you know, both are excellent at, um, at concentrating the mind and collecting the mind. So the, um, relationship of wisdom to mental cultivation and ethical conduct. Sayadaw Tejaniya says, when wisdom is present, there will never be frustration, disappointment, or depression 
because the goal has not yet been reached. Since there is a real understanding, it knows that just by keeping on the path, it will eventually get there. Greed, on the other hand, will always be disappointed as long as it has not reached its goal. That's good. So if if there's wisdom in the mind, there's not disappointment. Actually, um, boy, I can't believe I'm running out of time and I've got more pages to go. I was so worried I wouldn't have enough to talk about. So um, Gil Fransdahl has this wonderful uh, Dharma talk about how um, there is stages to awakening, you know, there's stages to awakening. And in the stages to awakening, there is a intuitive desire for deliverance that comes. And, you know, we could also have an egoistic, conceptual, you know, greedy, you know, as Sayada Upatejaniya says, greed on the other hand will always be disappointed as long as it hasn't reached its goal. So you might be leaving here thinking, well, I don't know if I really accomplished what I wanted to, but wisdom will always be happy. So when you're happy about what happened here, you know, know that that's wisdom talking. That's wisdom saying, uh, I know that I'm on the path. I am on the Eightfold Path. I have, you know, this, this fabrication in this moment is strengthening sila, samadhi, and panya. And when you're feeling not so good about what happened, know that that's just greed in the mind. That is just a hindrance popping up with a conceptual overlay over this beautiful experience that you've had. So watch out for that. Watch out and really know that, you know, we're all going there. I was going to talk about wrong views. The Buddha talked specifically about wrong views. They are not caring about right and wrong. Uh, Thinking that everything is fate, like I'm going to die at a certain time and it's going to be like that, or fate is going to make this happen or that happen, and not realizing what, um, what, um, our, the quality of our mind in this moment, d- what impact that does have on what unfolds. And then belief, total disbelief in itself and total belief in itself are both wrong views. That's interesting. And then finally, I'd like to say, uh, the Buddha taught that there are two conditions for the development of the path factors, for these factors in intuitive awareness to be strengthened. Uh, one of the, the internal condition for the development of the Eightfold Path is um, actually in the Yonaso Manasikara Sampada Sutta, the Buddha tells us about wise attention. He says, just as dawn marks the rising of the sun, which brings on a bright day, so too being adept in wise attention is the precondition for the realization of the noble eightfold path leading to awakening. And you all have wonderful training and practice in Yonaso Manasikara. And wise attention. And then 
the um, external condition for the development of the path factors for these forces in our lives are spiritual friendship, kalyanamita, sangha, spiritual friendship. I mean, even as much as fellow yogis might have bugged you or how much you loved them, this has been an excellent... I mean, what are the chances of these 110 people coming together at this time? The karma of us all being here at the same time, at the same place. It's really phenomenal. It is excellent company. And Aaron's going to talk about that, so I'm not going to talk about it. I won't steal or borrow some of that. Saida Utajaniya says, if you have samadhi, a still calm mind in this very moment, your sila ethical conduct will be pure. So there are many ways that sila, samadhi, and panya are absolutely intertwined. And they are forces that we have cultivated very, very diligently in this time that we spent together and that we will continue to develop and please know that, um, you know, based on um, what I've seen in my mind, pff, we really do have to continue the practice outside and off the cushion. <laughs> There's so much delusion in there. So many views that have nothing to do with reality. So much, you know, greed. I was gonna tell you, the story about uh, me, me, and grocery stores. I cannot pass a grocery store without stopping. What is up with that? On the one hand, my intention is to, you know, express my artistic talent at cooking. I'm actually a really good cook. And then there's part of me, though, that does it maybe because I'm a little bit lonely, or maybe because, you know, I'm greedy for just the best cut of steak, or I want a bargain, or... You know, I want to get something to satisfy, you know, something pleasurable that I think is going to, I don't know what I think it's going to do, but it's interesting how, you know, we could look at probably so many areas of our lives where there's so much unconscious stuff going on, but we have these tools, these beautiful tools, Sila Samadhi Panya, this path, these path factors, that's all we need to really look at all of it. So, thank you, my wonderful Sangha. Let's sit for a minute. May all beings everywhere know strong Sila Samadhi and Panya. May all beings that May all celestial beings, devas, tree sprites, all lost souls, may they benefit from the merit of our practice and may they find their way.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.